Tour de France is not just sporting competition. It's it's a, a French festival. It kind of exists on two levels. There's the, the competition with the riders from all around the world, and then you've got this piece of national heritage. <laughs> Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. I'm your host Owen Connolly taking you through another weekly wrap of stories from in and around the sports industry. Hope you're well, very happy to be back, very happy to welcome back as ever Sports Pro News Editor Tom Basson. Hello Tom. Hi Owen, how's it going? Not too bad, thanks Tom, not too bad. Uh, Hope you're good too. Also delighted to have with us the author of Le Freak, Family, Power and Money, the business of the Tour de France, Alex Duff. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Really pleased you could join us. Um, No prizes for guessing that we are going to be looking ahead to the Tour de France, which uh, begins with Le Grand Depart in Copenhagen this weekend and will run for about another three weeks after that. As ever, there, there are all sorts of intriguing things to follow around the business of cycling and the way in which that tour is structured and uh, the ways in which, you know, cycling fans are going to be engaged with over the course of the next three weeks. But yeah, Alex, your book basically takes a a long lens back in the other direction, but I think sets up quite a lot of the themes that that people will be discussing over the next period when it comes to the business of cycling. Why don't you just kind of give us a, a quick introduction to uh, to Le Freak and, and kind of what inspired it and uh, and what kind of view you took on it as you were putting the book together? Well, I suppose it, it began when I was covering the Tour de France for Bloomberg. Uh, so this was around 2007 to 2014. I used to cover the tour. And Bloomberg, bling, Bloomberg, they wanted to know the money angle. Who was, who was making money from the tour. So that was my part of my remit was to, to find that out. And uh, I knew very little about, about the Tour de France. I'd come to cycling quite late. Um, so I was just getting my head around it. But I, yeah, one of the first things that I learned when I was trying to work this out was that it was the tour was actually owned by this family, which was very sort of unique in modern sports that, the, the family could own such a big property. So I was obviously quite interested in this and, and just sort of digging around, trying to find out how this happened and managed to speak to one member of the family, Jean-Étienne Amory. So the, the family, is, as most of your viewers will, or your listeners will know, is the Amory family. And uh, so I had some contact with Jean-Étienne Amory, who actually coincidentally used to work for Bloomberg in London, uh, in in IT, and uh, so it kind of developed from there. And I and, and I just was fascinated by the story how they came to own the tour, and uh, so the book looks at how that happened. And it began with Jean Etienne's grandfather being in the French Resistance at the end of the Second World War. He was basically tasked with setting up a, a free press. The press was obviously controlled by the Nazis in, in Paris in, in the war. And he was set up with starting a, a free press with, with some colleagues from the resistance. And gradually he brought up, acquired quite large trunk, uh, tranches of the, the French press, including the newspaper L'Equipe, uh, which was the 
sort of descendant of the previous owner of the tour called Lauto. Uh, and he, he gradually took over the tour in the years after the war from the editor of L'Equipe Jacques Godet, who, who sort of fell into penurious times. He, he didn't have much money, so the Almory family took over full time and still they still own the race, you know, 60 odd years later. So one of the interesting things is that they they also still own L'Equipe and L'Equipe is the newspaper which is sort of seen as the the official or unofficial to the France Bible. It sort of has all the, probably the best, some of the best reporting in the tour. But given that they have the same owner of the tour, they don't really look into this, the ownership structure and the business model so much. So I think it's an area which hasn't really been looked at in a lot of detail. And so hopefully my book sort of fills in some gaps. Certainly does. I think one one of the things that it does, and you know, hopefully people will get an opportunity to read it if they've not done already, if they're interested in the Tour de France, is it puts the Tour de France kind of at the centre of you know media and marketing and evolving sports industry in France. Um, you know the the power of the press and the way that that changes over the course of of its history and the role that the Tour de France kind of takes on is like a a bit of state soft power for France, like initially internal after the war, creating an outlet for unity and an outlet for celebration, and then over time becoming this advert for France. And then at the heart of it all, you have the Amory family and and later kind of Amory sports organization as the management becomes of the Tour de France. In essence, is what the product is. But then, of course, you have the relationship that that creates or the, the um, incentive structure that that creates within cycling, which you know gives rise to this curious model that we still have. Teams are spending three weeks on the Tour de France, but really their whole year commercially and competitively is completely built around it. Yeah, and, and that I think that was partly because in America, the Tour de France was the only race people knew. So when Greg LeMond started to become a, a star in cycling it wasn't really much use for him to win la vuelta España, for example because he wouldn't get much sponsorship dollars on the back of that so he used to focus all his efforts on the tour and i suppose that was the real driver for the tour being so such a dominant part of, of the season i mean in pre and post second world war there were people like fausto Coppi and gino bartoli who would probably see the Giro d'Italia as as important to them as the Tour. And Eddie Merckx would compete in almost all all races and win them all. So it's a relatively modern phenomenon since the 80s where the Tour has become the the standalone event and and the other events have sort of lost a little bit of of their importance, unfortunately. And and so, yeah, as you say, the the Tour de France basically captures... For the teams and their sponsors, eighty percent or so of the uh, publicity that they get during the year. Mm. Well, what was the perspective you gleaned from Jean Etienne Amory about the role that that family sees itself as having relative to the Tour de France? Because, of course, there have been people interested in in buying buying the tour outright or buying rights to it or kind of going in on joint ventures. Lagarde were involved in it um, once upon a time. You know what is it? Is it? Gonna, you know, is their involvement? Were there going to be a point of kind of stasis around the center of cycling, or um, how do they see things basically when it comes to the race? 
Well, they um, they see themselves as kind of semi-official partners to the, the state, the French state. So obviously, for the Tour de France to function, you need to get the government's help to close off all the roads. Otherwise, you couldn't run the race. And they have a very also a very strong partnership with France Television, the, the state broadcaster. So you've got this sort of very important relationship with the state and you can't they can't really exist do run their business without the state they need their support um so they're very conscious of this and they're very conscious that the, the tour de france is not just a sporting competition it's it's a, a french festival so it it kind of exists on two levels there's the the competition with the riders from all around the world and then you've got this piece of national heritage which is very very treasured by most french people even the ones who don't really follow cycling so their grandparents and their great-grandparents will have come to the side of the road and and, and watch the riders go past and, and they will take their children you know the, today's parents will take their children to the, the tour and watch the caravan go past and watch the riders go past and there will be a village fete and they will put up bunting and they will have drinks afterwards and a, maybe a barbecue and it's it's not only a sporting competition and they're very conscious the Amway family that they have to look after that tradition. You know, it's one of the few things that brings all of France together. That's perhaps why they've been so conservative in that and how they handle the management of the race. Mm. The intriguing thing about the way that the race has evolved, I mean, you know, the Tour de France doesn't kind of pay huge appearance fees or pay huge prize money to to riders or to teams to, to be involved. But as we've discussed, it's it's the major point of exposure for for most of them through the year. And that has kind of created this, well, perpetuated this modern cycling model where teams are funded to a huge extent by sponsors. And, you know, that everything is about exposure. Everything is about generating brand awareness and, and generating other touch points, whether that's through hospitality or increasingly through kind of digital community and stuff like that. And because of the prestige of the Tour de France, because of this kind of outsized presence that it has in the calendar, any kind of efforts to create a different model for cycling, you know, a broadcast rights driven um, or media property driven calendar that goes through the year have, have sort of have sort of foundered. I mean, is that deliberate? Is that happenstance? Is that, you know, how, how do you feel like that's um, how, how that's come about down the years? Well, the truth is that the business model has been the same for 100 years. Sponsors have been putting their names on the shirts of riders since the 1920s. So the bike makers back in the 1920s would sponsor the teams and, and they would wear, they would have their names stitched into the, the jerseys of the, the riders. And, you know, so that model essentially is, is, is as it was in the 1920s. It, it changed for a while and they became national teams for a while, but that, then they went back again to this model which still exists today. And, and I suppose it goes back to the, the, the Ambry family being very conservative and not wanting to change the model. Obviously, they are the ones who are do the best out of it because they get all the TV revenue and the sponsorship revenue. You know, I think they're getting upwards of 100 million euros a year from TV and sponsorship. So nobody wants to relinquish their income, obviously. They're, they're conscious that they don't want to you know, lose out from any change in the business model. 
the teams have all been pushing for, for some time to get a, a chunk of the the revenue as, as happens in other sports you know other team sports it's it's obviously the norm that the teams would get a at least 50 percent or up to you know 90 percent of, of the revenue the second teams have zero percent of, of that revenue is, is very unusual um and the the the, 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 the sort of main sticking point is the tour that you know the teams need the tour de france more than the tour de france needs the teams so if they were ever to threaten to boycott the race which they've looked at in the past the the Henry family could say okay don't come we'll we'll just have uh, french amateur teams and, and you know people would still watch it you know people would come out to the side of the road bring their picnics and they would watch french amateur teams so that that's the the problem for the all the all the teams is they don't have any leverage really to wrest some of that revenue away from from the Amory family. Alex, uh, I really enjoyed the book for a start. Just on take kind of taking up that point a little bit. Do you, I mean, is that really still true? Would would NTT still pay ASO money? Would Discovery still pay ASO money for a race full of French amateur teams? Just as a cycling fan, I wouldn't watch it. I completely understand the the point you made about the uh, the idea. That this is something that is a kind of a French tradition in the same way, I guess a little bit like we talked about I mean, last week with Wimbledon being a, a, a British tradition, which goes beyond just being a tennis tournament. Um, but it is also the pinnacle of cycling as an elite sport. And if you took away the elite sportsman, would it still have that same uh, ability to generate revenue and therefore exist as a business? Well, I think that the French teams have a different business model from the foreign teams. So the French teams like Français de Jeux, all their sponsors are in France, right? So they they don't need to have necessarily the revenue coming from outside of France. Whereas the teams like, for example, Education First, they're global sponsors and they need as much exposure as they can around the world. So you've got fundamentally different business models. You've got the French teams, the non-French teams. And so... ASO, the Amory family's um, company, they've always been quite close to the French teams and been at arm's length from the foreign teams. So they've got this core sort of core support, which allows them to pretty much do what they want. You know, it could, if it came into a big fight, I'm sure they wouldn't want to kick out, you know, Pogacar and all the best riders from the race. I, I don't think that's in anyone's interest. But when if they're having an arm wrestle over who who's in control, I think invariably ASO will win the arm wrestle. So it came to a, a sort of head in 2008 when ASO pulled Paris Nice out of UCI's control. That there was a there was a big power struggle back then in 2008, and it came down to who's boss: is it ASO, the Amory family, or is it the cycling? ruling body, Union Cycliste Internationale. And ASO won that arm wrestle because the teams needed ASO more than they needed the, the, the ruling body. So I think that's still true today. And I think if it came down to a fight over money, ASO and the Armory family would still win. Is that changing? Like, I mean, is the rest of cycling catching up, do you think? Which is my personal opinion. Like, the rest of the tour obviously doesn't matter anywhere near as much. Like the... The UCI World Tour, those events. I mean, people were a big fan of the, the monuments earlier in the season. 
I really like the Giro personally. The Vuelta has always struggled a little bit, I think, to gain as much attention as the other two Grand Tours, but it still sits there, uh, also owned by ASO. Is the rest of it capable of kind of balancing out that at any point in the near future, or is it going to be the case for a while that the Tour de France and ASO still sort of run the show in cycling? Well, I, I think, you know, in, in the book, I look at a couple of attempts to remodel cycling, and, and uh, one was by the, a guy called Walter van den Hout, a Flemish entrepreneur who owns the, the main races in Flanders. He owns 50% of those races, and he's done a good job in bundling the rights to those races, including the Tour of Flanders. His dream, and he still has this dream, is to you know make a coherent season where you have one management company running all the promotion throughout the season and you can bundle the TV rights, you can bundle the sponsorship, you can make it a more coherent season rather than the disparate events which are owned by different people. And you know this this is effectively what Bernie Eccleston did with Formula One uh, back in the eighties. You know, Formula One was just these disparate events owned by motor racing organizations and didn't really come together as a championship until he put all the all the races on at the same time on the Sunday and he merged them all together into a coherent championship. Now with cycling, that's difficult because the races are different lengths. They're not all 90 minutes like in Formula One. But you could tinker with it a little bit to make it a season which is more coherent and has more of a flow to it. And that is possible, but... If it's to work, he, he needs to get the Amory family on side. And so far, they, they haven't seen the benefit to them of that happening. I guess the kind of other parallel would be I mean, it would be the tennis tours, right? The ATP tour, the WTA tour. like They are similar kind of things. And even they're still struggling to create like a unified season narrative across across a full year. So like even in places where that's kind of, actually got some structure already it's very difficult to do but when you've got one one family i guess not even a kind of organization running the whole thing it, it just makes it a lot more difficult do you see is, with the next generation of the uh with the amari family are they uh, open to change so much because i think like as you've said that that, that that's they're going to be difficult to get on side but do they see that they have a responsibility to the rest of cycling or is it just a case that they, they only really see their responsibility to the Tour de France and to France itself. Well, I think that their main priority is the French government and the French people, but I think they understand that the demographics of cycling are quite old. You know, I think it's 50 upwards is the average age of the cycling fan. They will understand that you can't just let the, the sport, you know, wallow in its history. You need to attract new fans. And you, they need to find a way of, of doing that to make the Tour de France still a, a major part of the, the European summer sporting calendar. They will be looking at new ideas how to, to do that. Um, and I, I suspect that they will be the, the new generation that will be more open to new ideas than the previous generation. You, you see this year with the, the Tour de Femme, I think it's called now the Women's Tour, that's a big leap into the future, and, and uh, you know it's, it's, it's probably a little late, um, but it shows that they are looking to the future. Um, so I don't think they're just sitting on their laurels and, and, and letting the water flow under the bridge and just 
twiddling their thumbs. I think they are looking to how they can keep um, the tour and their other cycling events relevant. Um, so, um, but the, the other the other point is that they're relatively small business. So the Armory Sport Organization, they don't have a lot of money, so they're very conscious of not overstretching themselves. You know, they 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 make they're profitable. They make some good money. The the Amory family home to take the Amory family take around 20, 30 million euros of dividends home each year. But they they don't want to overstretch themselves. So they didn't have a women's tour when they were pushed to do so about five or ten years ago. There was a big groundswell of support for women's tour, and they said, "Well, I spoke to." Jean-Étienne Amory at the time, he says, yeah, we, we're into it, the idea, we like it, but it can't be a money loser. We need to make sure that it's profitable. So they are very conscious of not damaging their bottom line. So they, I think basically the the farm is possible because they've got this big sponsor, Swift, involved. Now it can go forward and hopefully it is, is a big success. And uh, you know, I think there's a lot of potential there. This is always their concern: is that they will overstretch themselves and that you know start to lose money, and, and and with losing money, then they also lose their own sort of autonomy to a certain extent, and they might have to rely on other investors, which is not what they want to do. The dynamic that may be changing, who knows, in the in the next few years, when you look at comparable events in other sports, I guess the Ryder Cup would be one where players don't actually earn anything from their participation in the Ryder Cup, but it's huge for the rest of their career. Now, the 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 difference there is, of course, that's a co-creation of the two leading global tours rather than a separate company that lives outside it. But, you know, there's obviously a case in cycling for having a year-round presence that drives attention to the sport and then consequently makes the Tour de France bigger. But one of the things I think you touched on a couple of times in the book is these earlier attempts to to create something like that even when they wanted to incorporate ASO and incorporate the Tour de France in that, rather than just be subservient to it. The Amory family, you felt like were a little bit defensive, a little bit conscious of the power that they would be ceding if they allowed something like that to to exist. I mean, do you feel like that is still going to be something that affects the prospects of, of any kind of change to cycling's calendar or change to its model in the years ahead? Yeah, I mean, I think like any company, they're a little bit wary of the unknown, right? If, if there was to be a change in the model, who knows what could happen? You know, the, the great thing about their business is it's very stable. They have a long-term contract with the French television. They have long-term sponsorship contracts. They have a very stable business, which hardly changes from year to year in terms of the revenue. They like that stability and anything which might tweak the status quo could work, but it's a risk. So they're, you know, typically very risk averse, uh, like many French um, family owned companies, they don't really want to go into the unknown just because it, it might upset the, the, the balance of, of their operations. So I think that's um, any change would have to be done with the minimum risk possible for the, for the, the, the family business. Tom, I mean, you, you might have an opinion on this as well, but you know, the, story that everybody has spent a lot of the last few weeks talking about is live golf and this idea of a breakaway competition targeted at, at a sport where you know a lot of the participants are freelancers obviously in cycling it's slightly different because 
riders are, are attached to teams, but they might still be a target for something like this where you're saying, look, you can ride less, we'll pay you more guaranteed up front. You don't have to worry so much about your responsibilities um, to, to partners and you don't have to flog yourself for, for the, the same period of the year that, that you were to, to be to get through all these other smaller events that lead you to your big payday. Do you think the incentives within the sport, the commercial incentives are there to make something like that viable for someone to actually just take on some of the established events like the Tour de France? That's sort of what I was kind of uh, probing at a little bit earlier, but because it looks like it should be kind of rife for that. You've actually got a fairly well-established set of events outside of the Tour de France, uh, outside of the ASO events. They've got their own histories. They've got a very particular kind of rider that works for them, one-day specialists who are often very high profile. They win the kind of flashy sprint races. They're the ones that are more likely to win an Olympic event which is another, another big kind of area where cyclists get a lot of exposure. Yeah, there's not a lot of money for, for, a, for a lot of these cyclists. Like the big names get paid well, the big names get sponsors, but the, the, the domestiques, the junior riders, the, they're kind of there because they love cycling. Like that's, whenever you hear a t- cyclist talk about like, why they do it, like it sounds insane. Like they, they nearly kill themselves on a three-week grand tour. They distort their bodies into insane shapes and do bizarre things for the sort of, the fact that they love cycling so it's a tough balance like they definitely appreciate the extra income and there'd be certainly a set of cyclists i think that would be open and willing to, to to join something like that but then some of them do this because they love those old races i mean like bradley wiggins one of the things about bradley wiggins was that he was hailed in france because he was a kind of a tour historian as well as being a um as well as being a, a, a an entertaining rider to watch arguably not the most entertaining rider to watch but still an entertaining rider to watch nonetheless so it, yeah it, you definitely get that there'd be a there'd be a split i think you could probably you could probably do it um and if and if the tour de france became a kind of a heritage event like a goodwood festival of speed or a maybe a le mans 24 that that could be the way that it would have to go for a little while i think because as, as the book kind of sets out the tour de france sits at the center of the cycling universe it controls pretty much everything else that goes on in cycling and it's a bit of an immovable object so it might take a big shock in order to kind of rework cycling as a better commercial business because it like i still am amazed at how unprofessional some of the elements of it are the fact that sponsor revenue is still like is still such a key part of the business in 2022 when that is not the case in nearly any other sports industry or any kind of event of that of any kind of professional sport of that size with that much interest is 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 mind blowing really. Like you've got a lot of people that watch it on TV. There's a big discovery deal for for Europe. It's got its own B two C product. In many respects, it's quite modern on the front end of it, but on the business side of it, yeah, you're still talking about teams going under because they can't get a cycling brand to sponsor them for uh, enough money that covers their costs to pay their cyclists for a year like that that to me in a in a sport with the potential eyeballs of cycling is crazy yeah and of course teams can be just the end of their contract away from going under they're, they're basically shells a lot of them that are funded entirely by by that brand money okay let's um one more question about kind of the evolution of the tour and then i think we'll, we'll talk a bit about this year's edition and, and some of the points of discussion around that but you know this relationship between L'Equipe the tour and ASO and all the rest of it became very interesting around the point of the late 90s when you know you had the first of this wave of of doping scandals and you had on the one hand 
a respected newspaper that wanted to report these things. And on the other hand, a kind of overarching organization that A, learned that marketing people and advertisers don't like doping stories very much. And B, <laughs> they were kind of undermining the the reputation and, and the, you know, the appeal of, of a, a partner event or an event in the same family, I should say. You know, what, what, where do you, how do you reflect now, Alex, on what the tour's relationship and cycling's relationship is with, uh, with those doping scandals and, and, you know, where, where we, where have we got to really with that when it comes to the dynamics between integrity um, and popular appeal? Well, I think we're over like the, the, the dark old days of the 1990s and 2000s. I think those were like, in terms of ethics, those were like the low point for cycling and, and there was endemic doping and, uh, L'Equipe did actually a pretty good job at covering this. Um, and, and ASO was very, when I was working as a journalist covering the tour, ASO was very transparent with whenever anyone tested positive or it was, it was not like they hid anything. But obviously there was a conflict of interest in the same company um, controlling the race and controlling the main newspaper that covers the race so I, I, I couldn't I, I wouldn't say that they in the modern era they've ever really interfered in in, in uh, looking into doping but I, I I think now there is less doping than than ever or certainly less than there was 20 years ago and I, I think that is less of a worry today than it was for sponsors in previous years it's, it's, it's important to remember I think without doping cycling would have been much more successfully commercially than it is today you know if you look at the sponsors of the teams and, and the main sponsors most of them are not big companies like most of the main sponsors of the race are French companies I think three out of five, at least three out of five French companies so you had for a stage you had companies like Coca-Cola and you had companies like Nike Nike used to sponsor the yellow jersey Coca-Cola was a, a main sponsor those companies have all left. They left during the the, 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 the doping years, uh, and they haven't come back. So it's important. It's very important to, to remember what how badly doping has damaged cycling over the years and damaged the, the commercial potential. That is indisputable, and I think that's one of the reasons why there is a has been a lot of friction between the Amory family and, and the foreign teams because the foreign teams were the ones which were winning, winning the tour year after year and often they were doing it by doping. So that they were the ones tarnishing the Tour de France. They were the ones hurting the family business. And that tension, I suppose, has damaged the relationships between the, the two sides. So it's, it, you, you can, can't really understate the importance of doping to how cycling has evolved. And I suppose, Tom, it comes back to, you know, the point you were making about sponsorship deals being so significant in in bankrolling so many of these teams that you had a situation where teams felt like they had to get to the front of the peloton and get on the front pages and get in the TV broadcast by, you know, uh, performing well in these races and were willing to cheat basically <laughs> in order to accomplish that and then you had sponsors whose whose best interest was served by kind of 
turning a bit of a blind eye until they couldn't turn a blind eye and then suddenly it becomes a massive corporate reputation issue and a massive governance issue for them and they have to think about kind of pulling out of the sport in a, in a really significant way and it you know again kind of shows that just the precariousness of, of all of that yeah uh, the 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 sponsor the sponsor thing is a is still um it's a, it's a narrative that you hear every kind of broadcast you watch you watch cycling and it's all about uh, it's great for this small team in the breakaway they get to they get to show off their brand at the front of the uh, at the front of the peloton for the day i mean i'm pretty sure that the breakaway only exists at this point to uh to show off um the the brand names of the teams that are uh, that are in it <laughs> otherwise like it's just a kind of odd quirk of cycling that people go away at the start and then get reeled in towards the end when the actual people who might win the race will uh, come to the front taking up alex's point the the exit of those brands the the nikes of these worlds the it's very telling uh, of where cycling's reputation is is recovering from and i think it has got better i think like you wouldn't have seen an enios for example a sky come in if they didn't feel like there was some some kind of change something that they wouldn't ultimately get their fingers burned on if they entered the sport and came in i mean like for enios maybe the motivations are slightly different for sky but they are ultimately attaching their names to something and if that comes down then their name comes down with it and i think part of the Fewer around the around Team Sky and and the British cycling stuff with with bullying was all it all came to head at a, a moment and led to the kind of the ending of that partnership which had been the backbone of British cycling for a, for a significant amount of time and a very successful amount of time. Interesting to see, I think, where the the kind of next generation of these comes in, and we talk a lot about wearable fitness and the, those kind of brands. Cycling has a massive crossover for this, and I think it's something that other sports are starting to perhaps do better triathlon being one in terms of really bringing together that like this is this is what this brand does um zwift this is how it interacts potentially with professional sport yeah triathlon's really taken that on cycling did it a little bit during during lockdown those i think are the the, the areas where cycling can kind of move into is that more tech focused side of it where people can kind of use products to assimilate themselves with professionals i think one of the things that they're rolling out this year for the tour de france is a sort of is a zwift tracking tool where people who use oh is it zwift or is it strava i forget basically the same thing. um they can use the they can use the platform to track themselves against the pros and like that is going to give loads of people loads of people love that kind of stuff like my mates love that kind of thing with mm. like you could get like bit, bits that you stick in your football boots which show you how to kick a ball and you can compare it to cristiano Ronaldo. like that is a that's a real draw for for people and i think that there is where cycling can go to and perhaps reliance on kind of names of companies that don't really have any kind of um endemic purpose to the sport might might be the ones that slip away yeah i think that takes us nicely into the last few minutes where we you know we will talk a bit now about where the where the sport goes and the the future of both the tour de france as a as a showcase and and the sport more generally and i think yeah it's you have the b2b and b2c case and the kind of digital community case tom the you've seen ntt who've who kind of promote their sort of cloud logistics from rolling network that they bring to the tour de france and then you have the likes of swift now who are able to to do the connective fitness thing and and, and strava interesting one that was announced this morning, I think, as we're speaking, certainly this week, is that Waze, the the, the kind of maps service uh, for drivers, have, have introduced a partnership with the Tour de France where, A, they will kind of 
create maps of where the road closures are happening ahead of time um, related to the Tour de France, and B, they'll give their users a different way of following following along with the race as well. And yeah, it does feel like that's um, that's that's kind of going to be the next the next stage of it. And the other thing is when you think of Swift as well, you've got that opportunity to build into the hospitality side of things. You've got the opportunity to tap into the desire to do sportives and and, and stuff like that. And, and just there's there's a lot of natural crossovers. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the Ways one, uh, interesting just because like, I always like partnerships, which makes sense. Uh, and that one does. Like Ways is, is a really good app if anyone's ever used it. Like it, uh, it fits very well with the idea of like live kind of data of like what is happening as a road user around you so i can see kind of how that how that tie-in works and that's where probably aso has to if it's going to say it's modernizing that's the area that it'll do it is by is by going into more of those um yeah more of those tech focused partnerships where they've got more natural crossover than say like as, as alex pointed out in his book a, a chilean y brand sponsoring um as the official drink much to the sort of anger of the french people like that will become more those kind of things will become more important to the race than those um yeah than, than some of those kind of more old-fashioned partnerships although when it comes to the tour de france it seems probably like it's only like the the, the french sponsor side of it is is still going to be key uh alex with a lot of sort of domestic interest still there yeah i mean the the point i would make is the the at the moment how many how many people on the street would know who the main Tour de France contenders are this year? You know, there's, there's very relatively low visibility of the riders today, partly because they come from small countries. So Slovenia, obviously, is a small market. And so I'm very excited by the... You may have heard that there's Netflix will be filming a series at this year's tour. I think it's to broadcast next year. But that's... I think that's got a huge potential in showing the world what the Tour de France is and introducing some of the characters, some of the riders. Because if you're only competing in a big race once a year and people don't see you for the rest of the year, then obviously they're not going to know the characters. And, and these sort of, in sport, it's these soap opera narratives which happen outside the sport, which are so important. So in Formula One, You've got these little arguments, I suppose, with the team officials and with the drivers, and and that helps carry the narrative and and make the event itself much more, you know, of a sort of water cooler story. You know, people talk about it even if they don't really follow the race. So cycling really needs these its main riders to become personalities that everybody knows. I think. If that Netflix series can cut through in, in, in the same way as Drive to Survive cuts through, then that has huge potential. But I think, you know, in the old days when the Tour de France was perhaps at its biggest, maybe in before the TV era, when people used to cover it on, on newspapers, everybody knew that the riders and they, you know, there were stories about Fausto Coppi and him having a, an affair and, and then his rival being blessed by the Pope. And those kind of narratives, everyone was talking about them, you know, even, you know, not just people in Italy, but in France, in, in the Netherlands, in Belgium. And those kind of stories, 
you need those kind of things. You know, it's all very well saying the race has to be exciting, but you need people to to gossip about the riders and 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 chat about them and and say, oh, look what he did the other day. He, I don't know, he he, he uh, did something stupid. So sport for me, you really need to get people talking about these riders for the rest of the year. Uh, and that's what happened with Lance Armstrong. You know, his his was a story which, even though it was based on, on on cheating, you know, it cut through that that story before everyone knew that he was doping. It had huge cut through, and it did an enormous amount to to lift the profile of, of the Tour de France for you know for, for for several years. So that would be my sort of my, you know if I was trying to to push the Tour de France and the rest of the forward, I would be looking for a way to, to elevate these, 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 these people, the riders, and, and hopefully the Netflix will, will start to do that. It's interesting that in terms of like cycling documentaries there, I've watched most of them. They will tend to be about riders. They're sort of former greats, but the thing that kind of unites all of those stories is that they're, you're right, they're intriguing characters. So you've got Marco Pantani, who was a top cyclist for a very short amount of time, really relatively when you think about it. But everyone remembers him because he because of his personality and his persona. Lance Armstrong the same. I mean, like, I think there was a one of the ESPN documentaries he did. He's asked the question, "Are you still relevant?" And he goes, without sounding arrogant, "I'm absolutely still relevant." Like he people still talk about Lance Armstrong, even though he has like no place in professional cycling anymore. And that's their biggest res- reference point. It's interesting when you get like such brilliant riders from smaller countries. So like. Yeah, Slovenia has been a powerhouse of cycling now for like 10 years, Peter Sagan, Pog and Rog at the moment. Those are kind of hard people to sell to the, to the masses because they're, they're interesting, they're great at what they do, but they're not from big media markets. Uh, so it's going to, yeah, I think it will take something like a kind of a drive to survive style Tour de France show for those people to kind of gain profile. I think the great thing is that cyclists are very interesting. Like if you actually stick them in front of a camera, they talk really well, they say interesting things. Um, they're not sort of media trained robots like footballers. They they probably are a little bit more like F1 drivers minus the kind of the big watches. So you could get one of these pl- people becoming a sort of a Daniel Ricciardo of um, of cycling uh, as a result of it. Um, it just depends kind of which way they go and how successful like they are at getting those up, those riders to open up because I think there is a lot of potential. Like they they they. Riders bicker a lot in the peloton. There's a lot of bitchiness and that kind of stuff makes great TV. It's just whether or not they're able to show yeah. it. And it also ties it all the way back to the, the beginning where, you know, you had Lauta who um, basically created the Tour de France as something to write about in their newspaper that other people couldn't write about. And um, and it was all about the stories and all about the kind of heroism and everything else as much as it was for the first while anyway about the uh, seconds on the leaderboard um but that's been a fascinating chat alex and um yeah i'm sure uh, lots of people will be keen to check out the freak which is available from all good booksellers um but tom why don't we just wrap up quickly by going under the radar um anything outside of the world of cycling or maybe inside the world of cycling that you spotted in the last few days yeah outside of the world of cycling um in a in another sport which uh, is about to have a netflix documentary made about it but on the men's side um i was trying to watch the pga championship this this weekend uh, the women's pga championship sky have the rights in the uk they showed all four days but for some reason 
at some point in the evening, just usually as the kind of the action was getting interesting, we'd cut away to a mid-ranking PGA Tour event, which was won by like a score of 17 under or something absurd, where like it's clearly just been set up for like big hitters. It's not very interesting. It's like it makes me absolutely mad still that in 2022 that the the women's major is deprioritized in such a way on a major pay tv platform in the uk like to watch some parts of it you have to go into like the sky sky youtube it's on a it's on another like a sub sky sky mix something like that Uh, not enough really has been written about it everyone at the moment in golf is talking about live golf and it's a very interesting story but that like it was really frustrating that a tournament where you've got all of the best women's players competing and playing a really high level of golf off the back of a, a European tour event recently where it was mixed and won by a woman and yet still it's relegated to the secondary position. So like, it, it's not necessarily an underrated news story. It's just a bit of a rant for me about <laughs> the sort of the priorities still for broadcasters. And this is Sky who talk about the excellent stuff they do with the WSL. Why not do that with the, um, why not do that with the women's golf major? Yeah. And, um, just so happens as well that, uh, Sports Pro guest columnist, occasional Sports Pro, regular Sports Pro guest columnist, Min Almoda of Ampere Analysis has done a very good breakdown on why, you know, you need to look to women's sport as a, a huge growth opportunity at the moment. And I think that that is um, an example of maybe not giving it the uh, the opportunity that it doesn't just deserve, but but actually giving yourself a chance to, uh, to see some of that upside. But there we go. Um, something that I picked up on, um, I don't know that again if it qualifies under the radar, but I think it ties into some of the things we were saying about the Tour de France and the role of data um, and the potential value of data going forward. Um, and that's that the NFLPA, the players union for, for NFL players, has done a deal with sports data labs to kind of try and find ways of licensing and monetizing um, some of the real time performance data that's produced during NFL games. And NFL Players Inc., who are the commercial arm of that organization have also taken a minority stake in that company and yeah i just think that's going to be something that we see more and more coverage of the um not just the role and importance and uh, and potential of athlete data but also the ownership of it and um you know athletes trying to take some uh, stake in the exploitation of that data which i think they're probably entitled to do but anyway we will leave it there for another sports pro podcast thank you very much to alex duff thanks for having me and to tom bassam thanks guys it was a real pleasure thanks of course to all of you for listening the sports pro podcast is published by sports pro media and we'll be back with you again very soon bye-bye